All right, unbeknownst to Nancy, who's kind enough to create our slides every week. Thank you, Nancy, for the monitors. I'm going to add a verse. I'm doing that not to frustrate Nancy, although it might be a good idea if I used it so that you'd open up your Bible to find that verse as opposed to just looking at the monitors. There's a benefit to that, but I'm not going to use that mean tactic. But I'm adding Isaiah 9, verse 2. I'm going to do that for context, and then followed by our sermon text of a single verse, verse 6 of that same chapter. All right, the word of the Lord. It's from the Old Testament's prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 2 and 6. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness... A light has dawned. Now that's the context. Since Adam and Eve, mankind has been living in darkness, awaiting relief, waiting to be unshackled from their sin. They've been sacrificing for thousands of years insufficient animals that are only signs and symbols of the Messiah that's to come. They've been living in the shadows of redemption under the promise of a savior. And now, verse 6, it's the reason that we're all sitting here this morning. The fulfillment of that promise, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Amen. And amen. All right, last night we looked at the story of Jesus' birth in a manger, an animal stable in the busy little town, somewhat insignificant town of Bethlehem. I hope you remember that we saw the Bible's teaching us that this baby was a king, and not just any king, but the ultimate authority over all peoples over all monarchies, right? He's the king of kings. Even at his birth, that's what this baby was. He was king of kings. We noted that Jesus had always existed in eternity past. And so this human birth, we call his incarnation, his human birth was certainly not his beginning. In fact, Jesus never had a beginning. He was never created, but as the second person of the Godhead, he was and always will be God. It's just up to this point, his form had always been a spirit. But now, God the Son, he takes on flesh. He becomes incarnate, and hence, he then has two complete natures. Since that first Christmas morning, Jesus is both a deity 100% God, and at the same time, he's also man, 100% human. Now, to us, that's not mathematically feasible, but it is supernaturally and miraculously the reality. Last night, we also looked at some of the scriptures showing us that in the sovereignty and in the almighty wisdom of God, salvation was planned by him before the foundation of the world. 
and that the necessity of an, of an atonement, one that appeased God's wrath, leveled against man for his rebellion, our rebellion, your rebellion, mine, that an acceptable sacrifice for man's sins must be offered. The only problem with that, our dilemma, man's dilemma, is that the human isn't worthy. We're imperfect. We're sinners. We're unacceptably blemished. No one is without sin. No, not one. And therefore, no one is qualified to be that sacrifice. No one is sufficient to pay that penalty for sin. No one's perfect enough to bear that sentence of death. Except one. God himself. Literally, God himself. He's the only one. He would do it. He would love his creation so much, man and woman, whom he made in his image with eternal souls, right? That's one of the things that being made in his image means, eternity. We exist in eternity, maybe in heaven, maybe in hell, but we exist in eternity because we have eternal souls. He loved them so much that the only way for the human race to not perish would be for God himself to die in their place. And so Jesus was promised way back when in the Garden of Eden. God told Satan and Adam and Eve, and this is in Genesis 3. You can look this up in your own time. In Genesis 3, God promised that one would come from the line of Eve who would crush evil. That one day a Messiah, a Savior, would atone for sins. He would restore mankind to a right relationship from a broken relationship with their creator that's been marked by warring to one of peace, marked by unity. And so that's how this verse opens. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Given, that's a gift, given. Let's take note here that this verse, by the way, was penned long, long after the promise that God gave in the Garden of Eden. About 3,000 years had passed since God initially made that promise since the fall of Adam. But this verse that we're reading today is still in the Old Testament. It looks like it's from the New Testament, but it's not. It's a prophecy that came 700, actually a little more than 700, but let's round, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Pretty accurate. So if anyone ever tells you that the Old Testament contains no grace, tell them this really good one-word theological response. It's going to be tough to memorize. Tell them, hogwash. And then point them to Genesis 3's promise and Isaiah 9's prophecy that God graciously, graciously offered a Savior in place of man's inability to save himself. And then in verse 6, Isaiah tells us that the government shall be on the child's shoulder. This means that the Messiah will bear the burden of all rule and all authority. And it is a burden. This means that there will be one who ultimately does that. Who, who is that? 
What kind of role ultimately bears that sort of responsibility? The king. The king, that's who. The leader of the government. And lest you think that it's easy to be a king or that it somehow that's a, only a small accolade that the government will be born upon the shoulder of the king, I want to tell you a brief story that might help your understanding of the responsibility and the loneliness of authority. Maybe, I doubt it, but maybe. I hadn't heard it until many years ago, but maybe you've heard of the sword of Damocles. People think that leadership is easy and that it offers a cushy life. We often want to be leaders and we complain about our leaders. But consider this. According to a Greek legend, a servant, a servant named Damocles, he was pandering to his king, Dionysius. He was exclaiming that Dionysius was truly fortunate as a great man of power and authority. He was without peer and he was always surrounded by magnificence. But in response, King Dionysius, he offered to switch places with servant Damocles for one day. One day so that Damocles could taste that very fortune firsthand. Of course, Damocles, he quickly and eagerly, he accepted that proposal. So Damocles, he sat on the king's throne. He was surrounded by countless luxuries. There were beautifully embroidered rugs around him, fragrant perfumes, and the most select of foods. Piles of silver and gold and the service of attendants, unmatched beauty. All these were surrounding him. Riches of excess. He was living on that throne in luxury. But in his wisdom, King Dionysius, who had extremely important obligations that affected the lives of millions of his citizens, he had also, of course, made a lot of enemies as all leaders of that magnitude do. So before Damocles sat down on the seat of power, the king arranged for a long, heavy sword to hang over the throne, point down, suspended by a single horsehair from his tail, right around the pommel, right around the handle. Of course, that was a very precarious situation to be sitting under that on the throne, and it made the servant nervous. So much so that he was afraid. The king's point was made, right? It was done to evoke a sense of what it was like to be king, living under that sort of threat, that sort of risk. And though having much fortune, he was always having to watch in fear and anxiety against dangers that would always be trying to overtake his kingdom. Damocles couldn't take the stress. He couldn't take the fear. As the legend goes, he finally begged the king to allow him to get off the throne because he no longer wanted to be so fortunate. He realized that with great power comes great responsibility and great risk. But with Jesus, the Almighty, his burden as king is not a myth. It's real. He actually and literally, as the ultimate authority, bears the burden of governing the largest kingdom ever imaginable. By the way, as an aside, when I was writing this, I thought to myself, what is the best kind of government? 
Is it socialism? I don't personally think so. Is it communism? I definitely don't think so. Is it a federal republic like we have today? A democracy? Maybe. But I conclude that it's a monarchy. But only if that monarch is perfect. If that monarch is perfectly loving, perfectly wise, perfectly giving, perfectly just. In Edgemont, we're truly blessed to know that King Jesus is all of those. As supreme leader, he bears the entire government as a supremely capable king. And now to the four titles that the prophet Isaiah ascribes to Jesus. He calls him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. These, by the way, are actually royal names, royal titles that express both divine nature, right, the 100% God, and also human nature, the 100% man. They gave us assurance that Jesus is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. Wonderful counselors meant not only to invoke a sense of wonder and awe, but also of the miraculous. I say that because elsewhere in the, in the scriptures, this term wonderful, it's used to describe God's mighty works. When we call him wonderful, we often refer to him as wonderfully creative. The role of a counselor, by the way, you know this, the role of a counselor is not just guidance or advice, but it also exposes insight. It gives wisdom, right? It's insight under the sphere of wisdom. This God-man This child, Jesus, he will not only preach the word of God, just like the prophets before him did, but he is the very word of God. He's made flesh. And so literally, his counsel is both awesome and miraculous. He embodies wisdom. Literally, he is wisdom, for all wisdom comes from him. The second name that Isaiah ascribes to this baby. Mighty God. What good is a king if he cannot protect his citizens? I wouldn't want to be a citizen under that king. That would result in unassuageable fear. Let me read for you something out of Jeremiah's writings. By the way, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they were sort of contemporaries. They lived in different places, but... How's this for a testimony of might? It comes from Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, writes Jeremiah, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of armies, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and to this day in Israel and among all mankind, you have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah 
Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? How's that for a statement of might? Let's also consider something from the New Testament, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That's a capital F, Faithful, and a capital T, True. So we know who we're about to talk of. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The third of these four names that Isaiah ascribed to this child, to the Savior, this King, is Everlasting Father. Now, we'd be wrong to think that this has something to do with the first person of the Godhead, right? God the Father. It doesn't. No, instead, the term Father in this case is one that was used by ancient kings. They would consider themselves a father to their subjects. And not just because a father was an authority figure, which he was, but more so because the father is head over a family. It's more so a statement of relationship. It does demonstrate authority, but it really is about loving care that a father gives to his family. That intimate connection provided by dad in this Christ child, there is no turnover of generations. None. This father is final. He's everlasting. In him, there is culmination, a finality of fatherhood with no need for a successor. That's what Isaiah calls Jesus, the everlasting father, as leader. And one more help, excuse me, from scripture that shines light on this title, everlasting father, is from the minor prophets. I say minor not because it's less important, but because it's just a smaller prophecy written by Micah. He was prophesying that a ruler would come out of Bethlehem. Micah 5 Verse 2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now I'm going to teach us something here, ancient days. That's not a new term but used by Micah. The ruler, Jesus, is from ancient days, and it goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 7 when he has this vision. God is called the Ancient of Days. Verse 9 of chapter 7, when Daniel's vision, he saw one like the Son of Man who's given all authority and all worship in a kingdom that will never go away. 
He holds an everlasting rule, everlasting father. And finally, Isaiah bestows a title on this newborn child, Prince of Peace. There are two aspects to this name, one being that the child is the Messiah. And as such, he will die for the sins of many, and therefore restoring the spiritual unity with God that was destroyed way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve's sin. By the role that this child will play in the history of humanity, he'll end the warring that sinful man wages against their holy God. Right? It's cosmic treason that Adam committed. But also, we're told in Malachi, it's the last chapter, I'm sorry, the last book of your Old Testament. Malachi, also a minor prophet, chapter 4, verse 6. This term, Prince of Peace, also means this that this baby will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children. Meaning that human relationships in and by this Messiah, human relationships will be restored. And the government which he oversees as supreme leader, it will be marked by peace among his citizens. Earlier in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, it tells us that the Lord shall be a judge who brings peace to all nations. You may have heard this before, and you may have even sung this before. I won't tell you which oratorio it comes from. I'll let you work that challenge out for yourself. That they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. <coughs> from Isaiah 2.4. I'm going to end with this. It's the way Isaiah ends. It's a narrative about the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 5, Isaiah writes, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's a call to all those who are already believers. The house of Jacob is the spiritual seed of Abraham. It's God's chosen people. It's those who are elect, those who will be saved, those who confess their sins and repent and follow Jesus. It's a plea to be already what you are, to repent of disobedience rather than just going through the spiritual motions. It's a call to wake up and to walk in the light of the Lord. I opened up this sermon with Isaiah's declaration that the people had walked in darkness, or some versions will say walking in darkness, that they've seen a great light. Now, in case you've missed it, I don't know how you've missed it, but in case you've missed it, let me be clear. I want to connect the dots between Isaiah's prophecy and this Christmas morning. That light is the Christ child. Jesus, who was born this day, For unto us a child is given. This gift does us no good. Does us no good. That light being shown to us does us no good if we don't walk in it. There are those, by the way, who ignore the obvious. Maybe you know some of them. Because they don't want this gift. John 
3, verse 19, it reveals this to us. It's a simple truth. It's hard. People will get angry at it if you expose them for it. But here it is. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light has come into the world. But people love the darkness more than this light because their works are evil. In darkness, men can do whatever they want. They can operate with evil. They like it. And because the light exposes them for what they are, sinners, for what their deeds are, evil, they hate the light. Literally, they hate it. But for those who want light, for those who want peace, for those who want eternal life with God, their creator, then this gift is for you. You can take us out. You can put you in it. For unto you a child is born. For unto you a son is given. Wonderful counselor. He can be your mighty God. He can be your everlasting father. He can be your prince of peace. But when this child, when he actually grew up, he added another title to himself. He testified of himself saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, they'll have me, Jesus. They'll be in me. We'll be like one, totally unified. And so if you want that light, then you have to bow to this child. You have to bow to this king, and you have to walk in his light, right? You have to walk in him. Merry Christmas, Edgemont. It's a great story. It's all for us. That's why we have a Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this birth which we celebrate today, more than any other event in the history of mankind, this birth changed everything. We thank you for Jesus. His incarnation as a humble man, his life of suffering and his perfect obedience, And for his purpose and all of that, which was to die, to die so that we might live. Glory be to you in the highest. For in Jesus we have peace and with you we have life. And with each other we have faith. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.